Welcome to Bell Interrupted. Are you out of your damn mind? You get to drink from the fire hole! This is an embarrassment, a disgrace! What? What's the matter, kid? You got wax in your ears? Don't do it! You got Tammy and <laughs> Hello and welcome to Film Erupted. This is the show where I get to do whatever I want while dealing with the constant antics of Smash. We can review movies, video games, and who knows what else. Episodes can be spooky, too oddly informative, to downright stupid. I am your host, Phil Allen, and I do welcome you to the show. This is a little program I've been wanting to put together for quite some time. Wanted to do a bit of a tribute show to the Smashing Pumpkins. Now, this band was one of the most uh, influential bands on me. I grew up perfectly in the era of the Smashing Pumpkins. And uh, that was the, the years that I was super into them was probably like, I don't know, 1993 to 1996, 97, right during like their heyday, you know, right after Siamese Dream came out and Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness like right during the peak of their popularity. So we're going to talk about the Smashing Pumpkins. This is the tribute show to them, and we're going to listen to a lot of their tunes, and I'm going to play my favorites. So what I did is I went through every album, except some of the later ones. I haven't listened to any of them, but we'll get into that later. Went through the albums uh, at least twice, and I knew these albums very well, but I hadn't listened to them in years, you know? And I was like, hmm, randomly one day I was like, I could listen to some Pumpkins. Let me check that out again. I put it on, I was like, oh my god, I forgot how freaking awesome this band was. I was like, you know what, I want to do a show about these guys. So I went back through, listened to the back catalog, and picked out some of my favorite songs. So the first one we're going to start with here, and I'll talk over this so um, we're not just listening to music, but the first one I want to play, let me get it queued up here for you guys, is the song Rhinoceros. And you may not be familiar with that, if you're not a big Smashing Pumpkins fan, you may say, Rhinoceros? What? What is that? Well, it's not off their... They're two big albums. This one is off Gish, and Gish is their first official release. Came out in 1991. You know, let me start the song here, and I'll, I'll talk over it here. All right, so we're firing up right now. So Gish came out in 1991, and it was their first full-length album release. And it came out to um, limited success. They did a tour for it, and they were doing pretty well. Um, you know, most bands don't even really get that far, so... All things considered, it was uh, it was going pretty well for them. But let's talk a little bit about how the band even first got together. Oh, see, you hear that? Soothing guitar, nice drums. This song may come back to you when you hear it here in the background. So Billy Corgan is obviously the main guy in the Smashing Pumpkins. And he apparently was working down in Florida on some sort of like a goth band or something. Didn't work out. So he moved back to Chicago, where he's from. And he was working at a record store. And he ended up meeting this this Asian fella. And his name was James... Is it Iha? Iha? I-H-A? I'm not sure. We'll call him James... Iha, I don't whatever Iha. So he met him in the store, and they began talking about music and whatnot. And he said, "You know what? I play guitar." Billy said, "Oh, that's cool. So do I. You know, I had a band out in Florida. Blah blah blah." 
they kind of hit it off, had some chemistry, and they decided to meet up and start messing around with music together. So I heard an interview with Billy Corgan, and he said that the first they got together a few times and played, and uh, it was a song that James was working on, and Billy Corgan had a few ideas of how to change it, maybe, and, and make it a little better, he thought. He told them to James, and then James didn't talk to him for, like, weeks. And he was like, oh, okay. He was like, well, I guess, uh, you know, songwriters can be very particular about what they want to do and not like other people's ideas. Oh, well, I guess James didn't like that idea, did he? Didn't call me back. Nothing. Well, oh, well, I guess that's, you know, it is what it is kind of thing. And then out of nowhere, he got a phone call back the weeks after from James. And James said, hey thought about what you said let's get back together and let's work on some more stuff and that was really like the unofficial start of the band they got together they started working on things and they were having some success writing some fun songs they did a couple shows live that was just james and billy and they used the drum machine so it had a kind of a different feel kind of a mechanical processed feel they said and uh, they did that but the place where they played, the promoter liked the show, but he said, you know, you really need to find a drummer. If you can find a drummer, you can come back. It'll be a lot better. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She knows. I'm going to try not to sing over every song. It's going to be tough. Great song here. So you, they needed a bassist, right? So while Billy Corgan, he went to uh, some sort of show. I forget what it was now. I could look it up. Let me look it up, actually. It was a a Dan Reed Network concert. Ever heard of that? Never heard of it. And after that, uh, he met Darcy. Let me turn down the music here. It's kind of blasting my ear. He met Darcy, and he started arguing with her, like just some girl he met there on the, like, you know, at the show, like after the show's. No, I can't believe you would say that. And they started arguing. And it ended up being a girl named Darcy Rents. I think that's how you say her name. And she was a bassist. And their friendship began with an argument. And pretty much, Billy Corgan and this Darcy have been fighting ever since. They have had such a flawed relationship. Uh, But obviously, you know, as these albums go forward, sometimes the best things come from... uh, well, people that don't really get along. Sometimes they can be brilliant together. That, oops, just smashed the microphone. Sometimes that chemistry can be pretty good, actually. So he met Darcy there, and then she said, I play bass. He said, you know what, why don't you, uh, why don't you come play with our band here? Let's try this out. Maybe she could add some different ideas. So she did, and she came to the band, and they started playing together, and they're playing shows around, like, uh, by Wrigley Field, which is in Chicago. I gotta tell you, I'm watching the music video here. I'm just gonna take a break real quick from the history. This music video sucks. It's one thing I noticed YouTubing a lot of these Smashing Pumpkin songs. It's uh, videos. Not good. I don't know what it is. They're like the plainest videos ever and it's just random imagery. It makes no sense. I don't know. This, again, was during the big era of music videos, you know? 
80s, late 80s, early 90s. But, man, Smashing Pumpkins never got videos down well. Maybe you disagree with me. Some people like Tonight Tonight video. I think that's kind of frantic. I don't really like that video. I don't really like any of their videos. I think they're all pretty crappy, to be honest with you. All right, so Rhinoceros just ended. That was my favorite song off Gish. I don't really want to play any other ones. There are some good songs on Gish. It's an okay album. It's an okay album. Don't get me wrong. It's not bad, but it's certainly not a masterpiece. When the Smashing Pumpkins really did become a masterpiece is, again, remember that guy said, I liked what you did, but I really think you guys need a drummer. If you guys get a drummer, maybe we'll have you back. We'd like to have you back and have your band play more sets at our venue. Billy Corgan and the other two of them, they're thinking about this, and they agreed that, you know, maybe they should give a drummer a try. And they auditioned a few different drummers, had a few come in, and from what I understand um, is that a drummer is very important to a band. He's kind of like your, he's your baseline, right? Because he's the one setting the tempo for everything. The drums, obviously, it is the tempo. It's really important that you just match up and you feel comfortable with this person. If they're doing weird stuff or their timing is strange and you just don't feel it, it's not going to work. So they had a few different drummers that they tried and it was no cigar. This song in the background is Luna. This is off Siamese Dream album, 1993 album. Anyway, back to the... I love this song. So classic. Such a lighthearted, smooth song. I love Smashing Pumpkins' lighter songs. Like, they're more sappy, I guess you could say, songs. I just... I think they're far more emotional. They're kind of depressing tracks. So good. I like a few of their hard ones. But just listen to this. so smooth so they're going through drummers and they end up meeting a jazz drummer named Jimmy Chamberlain and it wasn't long before they realized that this dude is going to completely change the whole complexion of the band because before they've been playing along with the drum machine and Billy Corgan this is what he said we were completely into sad rock the cure kind of thing it took about two or three practices before i realized that the power in his playing was something that enabled us to rock harder than we could have ever imagined and he's speaking of course of jimmy chamberlain and that is definitely true once you get this real drummer in the deal man he can kick some ass he's a good drummer and it they really become a rock band at this point and then they produce the album gish and it it's full-on alternative blasting rock. And it, it takes them to good places, you know? Like I said, they got some pretty good success with Gish. 
And they got some radio play, like I said, and people were talking about them a little bit. But this is the era of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, even bands like ACDC, Aerosmith. They were still going strong. So you still got a lot of hard rock and the alternative grunge scene is in full swing. A lot of really popular bands out there to compete with. So it's a very difficult field. And Billy Corgan and the band knew this. All right, Luna's ending here. Great song. Whew. So good. Next, we're going to kick it up a notch here with Shara Brock. Whew. Now this. What a fantastic song to start an album with. And this is the one I was just going to talk about. The release of Siamese Dream. Talking about all those other bands that are big at the time. Billy Corgan and the band put a lot of pressure on themselves because they knew that their next release, 1993 Siamese Dream, was either going to be a make or break kind of thing. If it didn't do well, they were probably just going to sort of disappear as a band that had mild success with Gish and that's it. So he put everything that he had into this album. And every single song is awesome. And it starts with this great, great song, Cherub Rock, which is sort of about his like fight with the indie scene. Not sure what that means, but apparently a lot of indie bands thought that he was like kind of cheap in the way he made songs and had issues with his sound. So Sherub Rock is sort of like a F you to them. I don't care. I don't know what that's all about, but it is an awesome song. One of my faves. So the drummer obviously turned him into this kick-ass rock band, and they went full force into making Siamese Dream, put everything they had into it. Billy Corgan is on record as saying that if he had known Siamese Dream was going to do as well as it did, he wouldn't have put every single one of those songs on this album. Because let's face it, a lot of albums have filler songs, you know? Say you have a 12-song album. You probably have like eight songs that you really think are excellent. And maybe like three or four that are just sort of like so-so that made the cut. They don't stink. But they're not like exactly memorable or life-changing songs. Well, he has stated, for the record, that every song on Siamese Dream was, like, as hard as he could do, like, like his hits, you know, like, as best as he could do. He wishes he had maybe, in hindsight, been able to hold a few of them off for later albums, and it, it really does tell the tale of how hard this band tried to, to stay relevant and really make it. Because Siamese Dream is so unbelievably good. It's one of the biggest albums of my life. I remember I heard the song today. And I'm not going to play today because everybody knows today. And it is a great song. I love it. But everybody knows it, so we're not going to play that one. We're playing Hill's Faves. Hill's Favorite. The Shara Rock. Whew, so good. And you can tell, like, songs like Disarm are on this album. And... That song is, like, so passionate about, like, his childhood and depression and things like that. And you can tell he's really belting out, like, his heart in these songs. And and it won over fans. Fans really like that. They really appreciated this sweet guitar solo right here. Just 
So they put everything they had in this album, and like I said, it totally shows. It's so solid all around, so emotional, great vibe here. Billy Corgan, man, does that guy not have like such a distinct singing voice? I don't know anybody that sings like him. It's almost like a like whining. I'm just singing. I'm not even sure what it is. But it is very distinct, that's for sure. It is. Let me here in the end. See, that's something you just can't do with a drum machine. You need a real drummer for that. Woo! Alright, this is Geek USA, also off the Siamese Dream album. I love this song. Geek USA is really cool. This is a good song because it's like hard and it's got like 80,000 overdriven guitars on it. And then it goes down to just like a hush. It goes down to like nothing. Just a tiny little percussion and then right back up to slamming with huge guitars. I love that the Smashing Pumpkins are able to go on these peaks and valleys in their songs. They take you on like a little trip on some of these songs. It's like a like an experience. The band was opening for people like Red Hot Chili Peppers, Jane's Addiction, and Guns N' Roses. Those are some big acts. Pretty funny, James Eha and Darcy Rents were having a relationship. They had some messy breakups. So, of course, that caused infighting within the band. And uh, Jimmy Chamberlain, the drummer, kind of becoming addicted to narcotics and alcohol. It's a big problem. He had a substance abuse problem. And of course, Billy Corgan being the super emotional leader guy, he's going into depression. But they were still able to pump out, like I said, Siamese Dream and have it be amazing and heartfelt, which is why it connected with fans so much. But one of the things that not a lot of people seem to know about the Smashing Pumpkins, see, I love this breakdown right here. They can go from that hard song to this. So good. I can keep saying that, but 
one of the things, like I was saying, that not a lot of people know about the band is that Billy Corgan plays just about everything you hear on Gish, Siamese Dream, and Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. He plays the bass. He plays almost all of the guitars, except a few, but pretty much all of them. Plays the piano, does the electronics. He does just about everything except play the drums. He doesn't play the drums. That's Jimmy Chamberlain on those. Very interesting. The reason they decided to do that with the producers and whatnot in the studio, they came up and said, you know what? Billy is the leader of the band. He knows exactly what it is he wants to do. He's the main songwriter. Let's have him play everything. That way, everything is exactly the way it should sound. It's not that the other people couldn't play it, because obviously they played live shows, they helped create songs together. They could definitely play it. But I guess they just felt it needed that absolute precision on the albums. And the best way to obtain that was to have behind-the-scenes Billy Corgan actually play everything. So on Gish, Siamese Dream, and Melancholy Infinite Sadness, basically everything you hear except for the drums is Billy Corgan, which I find unreal because that is a ton of music. This guy is just pumping it out like a machine. And that caused a lot of tension within the band, obviously. I would be kind of pissed. James Eha, he's a great guitarist, you know? He does a lot of lead guitar stuff. And you're like, oh, sorry, you're not going to be doing lead guitar on this song. The song that we practiced a million times in the studio and you can do, I'm still going to play it for the album. It's like, what? Why? He's like, I thought we were a band here. So it caused a lot of tension. And, you know, the band was kind of cool enough. I'll give them credit for going along with it. Because, hey, the band was having success. They were getting popular and... I guess at the end of the day, it didn't really matter because when they played live shows, obviously they were a band. Billy needed them. Just he became kind of, you know, people said he was a tyrant, that he kind of was like a dictator of the band. Some people say that was a bit overblown. The press kind of labeled him as that. He says it wasn't that bad. And I guess, like I said, it caused tensions within the band, but the band stayed together and they were so successful that it's kind of hard, I think, to completely hate him forever because, shit, you guys are making money, touring, you're rock stars, man, you're living the life. The first album, Gish, cost about $20,000, and Siamese Dream took about four months to complete the entire record, and the budget was $250,000. So despite all the infighting and drug issues and whatnot going on within the band, Siamese Dream debuted at number 10 on the Billboard 200 charts, and it sold over 4 million copies in the United States alone. So with songs, like I said, Disarm, Today, Cherub Rock, they were successes. Band's picking up a lot of steam. People know about them. I heard about them at this point. I knew about them. I had heard Today on the radio. Oh my God, Disarm. Went out, bought myself a copy of Siamese Dream, and then I went out and bought a copy of Gish. So I'm a full-blown Smashing Pumpkins fan at this point in my life as a, what would I do, in 1993, 15, 14, I was approximately 13-ish years old, give or take a little bit, depending when the album came out and I found out about it, but maybe 13-ish, 14-ish, something like that. And, oh man, yeah, that album was like one of my all-time favorites. I just listened to it on repeat over and over again. 
Now, here's kind of a fun fact. In 1994, uh, they were signed to Virgin Records, and they released a B-side, and it's called Pisces Iscariot. Iscariot? I completely forgot about this. When I was re-listening to their whole back history, their discography, the backlog, excuse me. Oh. I completely forgot about this little release right after Siamese Dream. And here's what's scary about it. This B-side, it actually charted higher than Siamese Dream. It reached number four on the Billboard 200 charts. That is absurd that that was higher than Siamese Dream, like, copies and stuff sold, that it, it got higher. That is ridiculous because I will tell you why. I listened to that album, and I did have it. I did have it. I'd completely forgotten about it. I did have that CD. But that album sucks. It sucks. And you can tell that those are B-sides. Those are not the songs that made the cut for Siamese Dream. You can just tell. There is one saving grace to that album, though. I listened to it, and I was like, I don't remember any of this garbage. And most of it was not very good. There's one or two okay things on there. The one that everybody remembers from it, and I actually forgot was even on it, was Landslide. Remember they did the uh, the remix, the or their version of uh, Fleetwood Mac's Landslide? Here, let me just play a second. You'll remember it. probably do remember this being on the radio maybe you forgot i really like this smashing pumpkins version of it this is probably just billy corgan by himself but i think it's really good i think it was catchy it's a classic in my opinion totally forgot that it was on this 1994 pisces and iscariot album totally totally forgot about that but overall absolute junk of a b-side album so they were busy doing Lollapalooza and some tours and things like that and then they took some time off to write up their follow-up album. And holy smokes, was this an epic masterpiece. One of the best albums, in my opinion, of all time. Maybe it just hit me at the perfect point in my life. 1995. <sighs> Smashing Pumpkins came out with Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Man, is this an absolutely wonderful, wonderful album on so many different levels. First off, it's massive. You know what? Before I talk more about this, let's let's get let's get going into uh into a song here from Melancholy Infinite Sadness. Let's start with uh let's start with this one. Like I said, I like the slower songs a lot better. I like some of the hard stuff. Don't get me wrong. I can rock out to I can rock out to them too. Don't you get me wrong. Don't you ever question me. And my love for the smashing punkins. I can get down to the hardcore songs too. But for some reason, their lighter songs really touched me. Now, I thought they were just such passionate songs, and I, I like those better. So first one we're going to play is In the Arms of Sleep. Let me get that fired up here for you. sat down to write Melancholy and Sentence. they were like we need to go 
bigger, better, more dramatic. We need to evolve as musicians, and we need to blow people's socks off. Like they went, they went balls out. Is what they did. They just went straight up balls out. And some people who were behind the scenes were like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, Billy, guys, Darcy, all you." This is a bit ambitious. You're saying you want to release a double CD album? Mm-mm. I'm sorry. Nobody does that after you've had one commercial album that's been successful. Yes, eh. Okay, Siamese Dream, a success. You're supposed to build your fan base first. Come out with two, three albums that your hardcore fans really like. And you build a nice, sizable audience that you can do shows and tours, make money, album sales. And then maybe after that third or fourth album, you can start to do some more experimental stuff. Go a little bit out of your comfort zone. Because they were that hard rocking, emotional band. And they're like, we want to go bigger, better. You're going to lose your audience if you do this. You come out with a double CD that's no good. You're going to lose everything you had with Siamese Dream. It's not really how to say You got to do your Billy Corton voice. <laughs> right? That nasally. So they went balls out. Say it again. Billy Corgan wrote 56 songs. 56 songs in 1995 alone. Let me emphasize that. 56 songs in one year. He is a full-scale freak pumping out music. 26 of them made the cut for Melancholy, Infinite Sadness. So there are some that, you know, got tossed in the garbage can. Because you're writing 56 songs, not all of them are going to be home runs. But most of them on Melancholy, Infinite Sadness are home runs. There are a few fillers. I will admit that. I think Billy might as well. There are a few fillers on this album. But I would say a strong 85% of them are pretty much nailed Billy Corgan is on the record as saying that he wanted to make this album, he described it as the wall for his generation. And you know what? I think he I think he kind of achieved that. He wanted to make something that was so unique and so different from what everybody else was doing and on such a grand scale. And a double CD is grand. As you know, big as you could do. It's over, it's over two hours of music on one album release alone. It only took him like two years to do it. You know, Siamese Dream came out in 1993. 1995, they're already coming out with a double CD. That's incredible. Apparently, oh, In the Arms of Sleep just ended here. Let me turn it down. Apparently, when they went into the studio to produce Melancholy, Infinite Sadness, that they were doing like six days a week for like God knows how many hours in the studio each day. And they were like machine-like. They said there would be people in one room doing guitars and stuff, and then there would be the drummer would be in another room going constantly, and they'd be they would be writing different songs at the same time, working on them. 
They said it was just one giant music factory, and everybody was like locked in. Everybody was 100% motivated to make this be this grandiose album. Let's put on the song Muzzle here while we chat. We're chatting here. All right, there's Muzzle. I love this song. Love, love, love this song. Funny story here. When I said that I wanted to do a podcast about the smashing, I was saying that, and Smash was like, about Smash? I was like, no, about the smashing pumpkins. I would never do a show about you. And he was bummed, and I kicked him in the face. Had to do what needed to be done. This is annoying. He's not breaking into the show, so I have a padlock on the door. Trust me, he's not getting in. album is supposed to uh, it's supposed to conceptually be like the symbol of the life cycle life and death is praised by time magazine as being the band's most ambitious and accomplished work yet and to no surprise melancholy debuted at number one on the billboard charts in october 1995 they did it you come out with a number one album there's really nothing anybody can say you are the most successful band in America you are this album was certified 10 times as platinum in the United States and became the best selling double album of the decade the entire decade the 90s the number one double CD album I love this part listen to this breakdown this is a masterpiece let's just listen Notice how it subtly builds up the bass, the drums, and then it fires up with the guitars in the end. Just listen. It's just building. Absolutely fantastic music right now. You know, the other day I was on my treadmill 
and I was working out and I was listening to some of these great songs and muzzle was on and I was belting it out. I was really enjoying myself. I was doing guitar and air guitar motions on the treadmill. <laughs> I was slamming my hands in the air. Like I was doing drums in parts and putting my hands out wide. Like I was singing. <laughs> I was really into it. I don't mind admitting these embarrassing things on the podcast because that's how passionate I feel about this album and what an impression it made upon my adolescence. And to this day as a much older 38 year old man of with three children and a wife. And I can still uh, have so much fun listening to these songs. This is incredible. They also, they got seven Grammy award nominations in 1997, including album of the year. Uh, the band won Best Hard Rock Performance, and that was for the album song Bullet with Butterfly Wings. There were five hit singles off the album. There was Bullet with Butterfly Wings. I'm not going to play that. I think we all know it. 1979. <laughs> I may play it. It may be one of my favorites. Uh, Zero, Tonight, Tonight, and 33. Tonight, Tonight is pretty much as dramatic as I think it comes. That song is... Again, it's a wonderful song. It is super good. There have been times in my life I've had Tonight Tonight on repeat, just listening to it over and over. It's so good. Again, the music video sucks, as pretty much all their videos suck. But, hey, who cares about videos? It's all about the music, really. Tonight Tonight is just, it's so theatrical. It's so, it's like a, like made for a movie. It's like so like cinema, cinematic is the word I'm looking for. It really is. It really is that kind of a song. And that's what, again, that's what they were going for. They said, we want to make something nobody's ever heard before. Something that is so over-the-top theatrical. Oh, all those songs are certified gold. A couple of my other favorite ones, which I'm not going to play, but I just want to give a super honorable mention to. Uh, Stumbling is a great song. Like I said, of course, today, Disarm, all those ones. I like the song Soma on Siamese Dream is fantastic. The first song on Gish, the very first uh, song, I think it's called One or something like that, or The One, I forget now. That's a good song. Uh, I'm not going to play that, but that's a great track. Another one, I I really like their the last songs that they have on CDs. Um, the one at the end of Siamese Dream is great. The one at the end of each disc on Melancholy Infinite Sadness is awesome. And another one that's so good is To Forgive. That is a really sad, depressing song. When I've been bummed out before, not feeling it, put on to forgive over and over and over. It is a very depressing song, but it is just so well put together. Again, I would include that, but, you know, there's only so many songs I can play on this. I don't want to play, like, myself play a double-disc CD of all their songs. But definitely go YouTube to forgive if you haven't, and you can hear just the raw absolute raw emotion that is in that song it's captivating it's a absolutely just tremendous track another one i like an absolute ton is the very first song on melancholy infinite sadness melancholy whatever i think it's actually called melancholy infinite sadness the very first song track number one it's that little piano ditty
It's a, like the best intro pretty much I've ever heard for a CD. It's almost like you hear that. You expect this is the Smashing Pumpkins, that you're going to have some driving, some driving guitars, some driving drums. And no, instead it comes in with this really delicate, almost like cutesy sort of piano song with the violin and stuff. Man. And that's the kind of thing that just it knocked my socks off. I remember being like, piano? Huh? Like a whole song? And, you know, they proved me wrong. It's, it's excellent stuff. Now it's time to get into Phil's heavy hitters with the Smashing Pumpkins after listening to uh, their three epic albums. And we'll talk a little bit about the other ones, but I didn't really listen to those. I was out of, Smash Punk- out of Smashing Pumpkins by then. These are my four heavy hitters, my four top rated songs. And the first one here is Mayonnaise off Siamese Dream. Listen to these just epic little guitars here leading you into this driving beat. Ready? Such a good setup here. Oh, you hear those overdriven guitars? Man. You know, there was some sort of style that Billy Corgan did on Siamese Dream where he used a whole bunch of guitars laid over each other, like some sort of a layering technique. I'm not under- I don't completely understand what it is. But he stated once that he used over 80 guitar layers on the song Soma alone. That's pretty incredible, 80 guitar layers. And that's what gives that effect. Like, listen to that guitar right now, that distorted, you know, overdriven guitar here. Listen to it. It kind of, like, almost takes over the song, but yet it's still not too much. It's some sort of processed effect that Billy Corgan really messed around with on, specifically on Siamese Dream and Melancholy Infinite Sadness. And it is one of the distinct things that gives Smashing Pumpkins that that absolutely like quintessential sound that they have it's this over the top guitar sound i don't even want to talk too much over the song because i love it so much
another classic breakdown. Wait for the big guitars to come back. Just wait, wait, wait. not to bang your head to that part. Uh, ready? Right here. Ready? Right here. When I can head bang. I Of the hiss, they have the gahonies to go back into the little guitar riffs, the super subtle guitar riffs they started the song with. <sighs> How do they do it? Next up is number three on Phil's all time favorite Smashing Pumpkin song. This is, of course, one of the big popular songs, but I had to play it because it's one of my favorites, one of my all-time favorites. There's something about this song that is unbelievably fun and youthful and freeing. Like, when I hear this song and I'm driving in the car, I always belt it out, want to put the windows down, stick my hand out the window, let the air blow through my hand. There's just something about this song that, I don't know, reminds me of easier times. Like, it's freeing is really the best word I can think of for whatever reason. I heard this song recently, driving down the highway to work. It was clogged New Jersey highway. And I'm singing this song, happy as a clam, at the top of my lungs, loving it. Just listen to this. simplest but greatest drum beat ever that is actually a drum machine little known fact that is a drum machine they were starting to get a little bit more into their 
some electronical stuff in Melancholy Infinite Sadness. They were starting to tinker with it a little bit, which is where they went in later albums. Didn't work out as well in terms of sales. Uh, the band definitely took a decline after that commercially, but in this song, it is still an absolute masterpiece. Okay, let's get back into the chorus. Another thing really cool about this song is it's extremely simple. I mean that. It's like really easy to play on guitar. It's very repetitive. The song isn't going all over the place like Geek USA or Mayonnaise just did up and down peaks and valleys. No, it's just staying par for the course consistent and it just works tremendously. Tremendously! Masterpiece. Master, masterpiece of the song. Let's get into a little bit of the sad news. Now, you guys may remember this. In 1996, the band suffered, well, pretty much a huge tragedy. And this was kind of the beginning of the end in some respects. Obviously, we mentioned a little bit that Jimmy Chamberlain, the drummer, had a substance abuse issue. And on July 11th in 1996, him and the touring keyboardist Jonathan Melvilleine, they overdosed on heroin. Whoops, big mistake. Jimmy Chamberlain uh, survived it. However, the keyboardist passed away, overdosed and died. Jimmy Chamberlain was then arrested for drug possession. A few days later, the band announced that Jimmy Chamberlain had been fired as a result of the incident. They had told him. They had been trying, they said, to get him to stop using drugs. They had told him, they'd given him ultimatums, said we have a zero tolerance policy. If you were caught, you're done. And he did it. And they followed through and they fired him from the band. But like I said before, Jimmy Chamberlain was a lot of the glue that kept the band together as the drummer. Now he's depressed. He hit rock bottom. He's out of the band. And strangely enough, I remember when this happened because I was trying to get to the tour. I was trying to go to it, 1995, 96, whatever it ended up being. 
And I really wanted to go. And I remember my girlfriend ended up going. She somehow got tickets. And there was some reason that I wasn't able to go. I can't for the life of me remember what it was. And she went to the show. And she said it was the best thing ever. And I was so jealous that she was able to go. And I wasn't. Like I was like, you know how you're really dramatic when you're a teenager. I was like depressed. I couldn't believe I couldn't make it to the show. I don't remember if it was too expensive. I had family obligations. I don't remember what it was. Either way, it sucked. And I was super bummed out. And I think she brought me back a, a one of the touring shirts, you know? And I list like the shows on the back. It was, it was a really nice gift from her at the time, but it like further sunk me in a depression. Like you just see me, you see my face right now. My eyes are like squinting shut. I'm looking down, I'm depressed. I never got to see the Smashing Pumpkins live. I had my one chance during the Melancholy Infinite Sadness tour when they were at the peak of their peakness and I missed it. I wasn't able to go. Never forget it. I'm obviously still a little broken up about it. But anyway, <sighs> Billy Corgan and the rest of the band ended up filling in with the drummer from, what was he from? Which band did they get him from? They hired this drummer named Matt Walker and another keyboardist and they ended up finishing out the tour. Billy Corgan pretty much has admitted that it was like the worst decision they could have ever made. It damaged their music and their reputation. Like they just didn't have, it's hard to just be like, Hey you come in. It just didn't have the same flair. didn't have the same vibe uh, with a different drummer. It felt wrong. He said it just didn't feel right. Just replacing Jimmy. Like he wasn't there with somebody else, even though they loved him, but they knew they had to get rid of him because of the whole drug issues said it really, really was, uh, it made the whole tour have a nosedive because they were on tour for like a year. And when they started out, everything was awesome. They were on top of the world. They were the best. They were the biggest rock stars in the world at that time. I think it's hard to debate that. And now this horrible tragedy happens and everyone's starting to be like, this sucks. Are we on tour again? Oh, we have another show. Oh, we're traveling again. Oh, we have another show. Like, when is this going to end? Like, not for months. You're like, Jesus Christ. So the whole band sort of started to collapse on itself. Guys are fighting. It's not working out very well. The band comes out and says that Jimmy struggles with uh, his disease of drugs and alcohols have pretty much destroyed everything that we are and what we stand for. So, I mean, even though Billy Corgan wrote most of the songs and performed them on the albums, you could tell that they, they were still a tight-knit group for as dysfunctional as they were. And when this one guy had this tragedy happen and the keyboardist died, man, it really messed up this band. It really, really messed up this band. It would have been interesting to know what would have happened to Smashing Pumpkins if Jimmy Chamberlain had not overdosed and been kicked out of the band and that whole situation had not happened. I wonder if they would have continued to come out with crazy hard rock albums and the emotional tracks that they have that they're so famous for. They're all different styles of rock, but that's not what ended up happening. And they went in a very different direction after Melancholy, Infinite Sadness. They ended up coming out with an album called Adore. And James Eha said at the end of 1996, so they're pretty much wrapping up Melancholy more or less, he said, the future is in electronic music. It seems really boring just to play rock music. I could see where maybe he says that uh, because I do think there was an electronic thing going. There was a lot of techno and things like that. The electronica age was getting really big in the mid to late 90s. I know because it was my favorite genre. I was super into that kind of music. 
all different kinds of styles of electronica. Super into it. So I understand what he was saying. However, that's not the Smashing Pumpkins. And I guess that's weird for me to tell them, yeah, guys, that style you want to start doing, that's not you. But Because they're the band. They can do whatever they want. But that's not them. And when they did the album Adore, they did not have Jimmy Chamberlain, their drummer, anymore. So they were back to using pretty much a drum machine for most of the album. And I listened to Adore. It's not necessarily a bad album. It's really not. In fact, I think the first song is fantastic on it. There's some other really good ones. The main song from it is called Adore. And that's a good song. It's got a very electronical feel, but that's a good song. Not enough for me to include on my list here, but I got out of Smashing Pumpkins pretty quickly after Melancholy, Infinite Sadness. I mean, I was still super into it, but after once they came out with Adore, it was just like it was almost like the Smashing Pumpkins just like collapsed out of the scene. Like I said, that drug overdose really really crushed this band. And they you know, they still had some music videos on MTV and whatnot, but the Smashing Pumpkins weren't the same band. And I think they knew that. They even said that when they made the album Adore that after all the tragedy in the band that they couldn't come out with another like fantastic kind of album like melancholy infinite sadness was they didn't have it in them and they didn't want to do that again that was sort of a once in a lifetime coming together of music and they didn't want to produce that again because how are you going to outdo something like that it's going to be you can't outdo a double disc that's as dramatic as that one is it's gonna be nearly impossible and they felt that if they tried, they would fail. So they wanted to go in a more experimental, different direction. So this electronic way. And it's actually similar to more of what they were like before they had Jimmy Chamberlain as their drummer. Back pre-Gish days. Some of their experimental stuff. Like I said, it wasn't necessarily bad. But for people like me and Smashing Pumpkins fans at the time, it was definitely like a... What is this? This isn't the Smashing Pumpkins I know. Like, eh, it's an okay song. Yeah. That's really all it was. But for them, they needed an album to, like, heal themselves. And if you listen to Adore, a lot of the songs are really slow and very heartfelt. And that's always been Smashing Pumpkins' sort of motto, things like that. But this was different. This was a very intimate album. You could tell that they were kind of a bit broken after all the success and just the hugeness of what Siamese Dream and Melancholy was. The Smashing Pumpkins needed a Door album more for themselves than they than they did for the fans. It was almost a little self-serving to an extent. And that's fine. They were accomplished musicians at that point. They can do whatever they damn well please. However, it just didn't have the same commercial appeal. And it kind of bombed a little bit. There was also a lot of other things going on. Billy Corgan's mom died. He got a divorce. So it was definitely a significant change of style from their their previous, you know, guitar-driven successful albums. Since then, the band has been breaking up on and off. Uh, uh, this member's in, this member's out. The uh, Jimmy Chamberlain came back for a brief little tour in 1999, and then the departure of Darcy, the bassist, she was gone. So now they came out with another little album there, and this and that, and then they broke up, and Jesus Christ, these guys, they can't stay together. They ended up putting in the bassist from uh, Hole. <laughs> Do you remember that band? Wow. Courtney loves band Hole. I actually liked them too back in the day. Man, they were really, really grungy and dingy, that band. 
So all things said, they, you know, like I said, they break up a million times, get back together. And then this is kind of a cool story. So they go through the 2000s, kind of doing that off and on, different members. Uh, And then in 2018, so fairly recently, uh, the band actually got back together, minus Darcy. Unfortunately, Darcy is still not on board, for whatever reason, still fighting with Billy Corgan over something stupid, probably. Those two have always had a long-standing feud and arguments. I mean, their friendship and started out with a fight, so no surprise that they're continuing. I even saw an interview with Billy Corgan where he's laughing about it, and he's just like, yeah, you know what, like... Maybe someday she'll come back and join us again. You know, we can sort of have a last hurrah or whatever. He's like, but, you know, shit, man. Her and I have always fought, so this is kind of just what we do. You know, like, to our bitter ends. This is just... We had some amazing, unearthly success together, but fucking fight. That's what we do. That album, Adore, came out in 1998. Then they came out with some other ones. Machina... The Machines of God, 2000, never heard it. Machina 2, The Friends and Enemies of Modern Music, also in 2000, never heard of it. Zetgust, <laughs> I can't say that at all. That came out in 2007, never heard it. Uh, a couple uh, collabs with some other people. And then in 2018, Shiny and Oh So Bright, Volume 1, LP, No Past, No Future, No Sun. That's kind of the depressing as hell title. I have not listened to the new stuff. I'd actually be very interested to hear what Smash and Pumpkin sounds like in 2018. Like, what did Jimmy, James, and Billy come up with, minus Darcy, come up with in 2018? I have not listened to that. I have not done the full research that I needed to do for this show. Damn it, Phil. Like I said, for me, it was Gish, Siamese Dream, and Melancholy, Infinite Sadness. After that, fell off pretty quick. They did do kind of an interesting song called I-E-Y-E for the uh, Lost Highway soundtrack. And that is a cool song, I have to admit. That one is very heavily electronic, but it's like successfully heavily electronic. I may not have thought much of it at the time because, again, I was expecting the, you know, thrashing guitars, rock, smashing pumpkins, and it was different. But hearing it now, I like the song. It's a good song. But before we're done, let's play my last two remaining songs. My all-time two favorite tracks here. Coming in at number two is the... Oh, this is a great song. 33. Speak to me in a I love this, the, the part right here, I'll tell you, I'll tell you right here, right here. Love that.
this is one song that whenever I get together with my two good buddies, Adam and Mark, you know, like I said before, I'm 38 years old right now. Everybody has families, careers. It's extremely hard for us to get together like we used to back in the day. But when we do get together, you know, every like three, four months, we'll finally all get back together. Our schedules work. We'll all hang out. We'll be shooting the shit, talking. We'll play some old music. We play 33 every single time that we get together. And I definitely think of these guys every time I hear this song. times when if the mood is right and I hear that song it can almost like choke me up like I just like it's such I don't know it just makes you like appreciate life kind of song like your past your future everything I don't know how a song can sort of sum that up maybe I'm reading too much into it or something but that's sort of what that song is for me it's kind of like you hear it and you appreciate your past but you love your present you're excited for your future i don't know why that song represents that to me but it just does i guess maybe the lyrics and stuff just the feel of the song and that's why it's so high on my all-time favorite list of smashing pumpkin songs it 33 will never ever go out of style for me but let's get to the number one song the number one song is off siamese dream and it this is a song that Probably a lot of people would be like, huh, what? This is your all-time favorite Smashing Pumpkin song. And it is. It's the song Hummer. I believe it is song four, I want to say, on the album. I forget because now I have MP3s or I stream it. I don't even remember. But I think it was the fourth track on the album. There's something about this song. It's 
indescribable for me. So I'm going to have a hard time putting it in into words. This song, for whatever reason, has always touched my heart incredibly. It sounds silly to say it like that, but it has. And again, I just said I'm, it's going to be hard to put into words, and it is. I can't quite put my finger on what it is I want to say about this song. Other than from start to finish, I think the song is absolute perfection. Absolute mastery in music writing in every sense of the word. So I'm not even going to talk over this song. I'm going to mute myself. I'll be singing to it. You won't hear that. But I'm going to play this song in its entirety. This is Hummer off Siamese Dream.
Thank you, Smashing Pumpkins. Thank you, Billy, James, Darcy, and Jimmy. Thank you guys for giving me so many great memories in my childhood, my adolescent years, and also in my adult years. Love you guys. Fantastic music. One of my all-time favorite bands. It's been a pleasure putting together this Smashing Pumpkins tribute for you guys. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. Leave me an email over at philinterrupted at gmail.com. Send me your favorite Smashing Pumpkin songs or anything like that. I'd love to hear back from you. Guys, as always, excellent time. Loved it. And you know, as always, we're making moves here on Phil Interrupted. And we will catch you next time. Peace out! I should also just state for the record that there was also a B-side compilation called the Aeroplane Flies High Box Set. Uh, There's a bunch of the songs that did not make the cut for Melancholy, like I said, the B-sides. And it was originally limited to only 200,000 copies, but there was extreme demand, so they ended up producing more. I may have had this. I don't even remember. Hello and welcome to Fell Interrupted. This is the show where I get to do whatever I want while dealing with the constant antics of Smash. We can review movies, video games, and who knows what else. Episodes can be spooky, too oddly informative to downright stupid. I am your host, Phil Allen, and I do welcome you to the show. Today we get to do a show that I've been really looking forward to for quite some time. Today is going to be the Smash Ing Pumpkins tribute show. No. To you. you don't. Did you say smash? No. I didn't say smash. I said smashing pumpkins. <laughs> oh, I think the mic's picked that up. <laughs>